One of the well-known parts of cricket is called sledging. Uh, Sledging is uh, comments and criticisms and jokes that you make while you're playing cricket designed to put your opponent off, to unsettle them, to make them lose their concentration. Uh, And the best sledging is funny rather than aggressive or insulting. And when it's said as an answer to an opponent's sledge, it's even better. Giving the right answer in the right way at the right time. Uh, Here's three of my favourites. Uh, James Ormond was playing for England against Australia in 2001. As he came out to bat, Mark Waugh, the brother of the captain, Steve Waugh, said, look who it is. Mate, what are you doing here? There's no way you're good enough to play for England. Ormond replied, maybe not, but at least I'm the best player in my family. Uh, In a county match in England, Greg Thomas was bowling to Viv Richards. Uh, the West Indian champion, and getting a few, getting him to miss a few. After Richards played and missed another one, Thomas said, it's red, it's round, now hit it. Bad idea. Viv Richards proceeded to hit the next ball for six out of the ground and Richards said, you know what it looks like, now go and get it. Uh, Daryl Cullinan was a South African player who was well known for not playing Shane Warne, uh, who bowled leg spin very well. And Shane Warne was known for not being the most athletic player around. Uh, the two hadn't played each other for some time when Cullinan walked out to bat and Warne uh, Warn couldn't resist uh, heckling him. He said, I've been waiting two years for another chance at you. Cullinan said, looks like you spent it eating. Uh, giving the right answer in the right way at the right time. Now, Christians are called to do the same thing, not in the way that cricketers do it, mind you. Uh, As aliens and strangers in the world, sometimes it can be just as aggressive for us as it is on the cricket field. Often we're ridiculed and threatened. How do we respond? Well, Peter says we're to give the right answer in the right way. We're called to respond to evil and anger with humility and blessing. Do you see there in verse 9? Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. God has called us to be different, in particular in how we speak. Rather than to fight fire with fire, Rather than escalate or increase the aggression and anger, we should diffuse it. Rather than outdo each other with threats and insults, we're to answer people with blessing, to wish them well rather than harm. It's easy to say, isn't it? Why are we to do that? Well, Peter says, so we can receive a blessing from God. And then he quotes Psalm 34. It's a wisdom psalm about how to live well in God's world. So verse 10, whoever would love life and see good days, in other words, if you want want your life to turn out well, then as a general rule, live this way. And the psalm goes on, you must keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. You must turn from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. Give the right answer in the right way at the right time and you'll be blessed. 
But this is more than just karma. Uh, That's the way lots of people think the world works. They say if you do good then the universe has a way of returning good to you. I don't really know how that would work but that's what lots of people think. Uh, Verse 12, uh, we're not says, choose to respond with blessing because God is watching. Uh, that's, the way it, that's why it works the way it does. He hears our prayers and he turns away from those who do evil. Uh, see, it's not karma when blessing comes, when we bless people. It's God's character. Uh, right living brings blessing because of God's character. God is just and he's sovereign, he's in charge. And so, as a general rule, Uh, Those who deserve it receive the benefits and wicked receive punishment. As a general rule, when you obey the law, you get a peaceful life, says Peter. Verse 13, he asks the rhetorical question, the question that expects a yes answer. Uh, Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? No one is what we expect the answer to be. In general, You live well, things turn out for you well. Now at this point you might be thinking, hmm, but what about when it doesn't work out like that? There are plenty of times when justice doesn't happen, when the wicked go unpunished and when the good, when God's people suffer. In fact, when God's people get punished precisely because they're God's people, like has happened in Nigeria in the last couple of weeks or India, or Pakistan, or Burma, or North Korea. Where is God then? Well, Peter is realistic enough to know that terrible things do happen to God's people. In fact, it's one of the main themes of the whole letter, how to deal with persecution. But to begin with, he's thinking about the majority of cases. In general, do good, seek peace, and God will work things out in your life so that they go well. But then in verse 14 he turns to the, to the minority case, the smaller case. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Especially when you're in the middle of suffering or persecution, somehow blessing doesn't just come when things go well like Psalm 34 describes, when you're having good days and loving life. That's not the only time you're blessed. There's blessing even when you suffer because you're choosing to live God's way. Peter believes that because that's what he heard Jesus say. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. You see, the blessing comes by knowing whose kingdom you belong to. If this world was all there is, if it was your only reward, then you'd be crazy to say suffering was blessing would be nonsense. But if you suffered because you were living out God's kingdom, you were living out his priorities, you were following Jesus as king, the persecuted one, 
then in a way the persecution is a sign that you're doing something right. That your light is actually pushing against the darkness and the darkness is pushing back. So Jesus is saying, keep a heavenly perspective. Great is your reward in heaven. That's why persecution is a blessing because you're living with heaven's priorities. And Peter agrees. Verse 14, keep a heavenly perspective. He says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. That's a heavenly perspective. Physical pain, physical death, that's the worst it can get for you on earth. That's the ultimate thing you can fear. But the heavenly perspective doesn't have uh, doesn't have to fear rejection and pain, doesn't even have to fear death because we're just travellers here. Uh, we're just tourists. We're on our way home to somewhere that's better and richer and greater. What would we fear here? Death? Well, not really. Death just brings us home quicker. Peter says, instead, set apart Christ as Lord. Sanctify him, make him holy, set him apart as special, make him ultimate and number one. Make Jesus your most important. Don't fear these things, don't make them important, make Jesus important. Make him your greatest treasure, your ultimate prize. Make his approval your reward. That's how you can see persecution as blessing. That's something the life of Grant Locke shows. He's a normal Aussie Christian, a farmer from South Australia. Twenty years ago he left his farm to go to Pakistan and later Afghanistan to help them rebuild schools and community infrastructure. He wrote a book called Shoot Me First and it describes this incident. He was helping rebuild a girls' school in Afghanistan uh, you know, you may know what they think of girls' education in that part of the world. Uh, one of his workers ran up to him one day and said that a gang of angry men with beards and guns were at the front gate and their leader was threatening that if Grant didn't stop the work, he'd shoot them. Grant tried to explain they were rebuilding the school to help the children. Uh, he thought of a girl he'd met the previous day who'd wanted to keep going to school so she could train to be a doctor. And Grant somehow found the courage to say to the, to the mob, if you're going to shoot them, you're going to have to shoot me first. That seemed to satisfy them. Uh, they respect bravery and bravado and they gradually left, leaving the team to get on with their work. And the school has grown. That's not fearing what the world fears. And when you have that attitude of setting apart Jesus as number one and not fearing worldly things, then it means you're equipped. You're equipped to give a right answer in a right way at the right time, just like Grant could do. You see there in the second half of verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. If Jesus is number one, if you're working for his glory, then that means you're prepared, you're ready to talk about him whenever you have the chance. 
if you've set him apart as Lord, you'll give the reason for your hope, your confident expectation of the future. Because you know Jesus is reliable and his promises are sure. And not fearing means the words that you want to say won't get stuck in your throat. You won't fear men. Uh, You'll give an answer to, to everybody, no matter how scary they look. Well, Peter goes on, it's not enough to just have the right answer, you have to give it in the right way. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Our words need to be backed up with our behaviour. There needs to be consistency between our mouth and our hands. We declare a message of grace, so we need to behave graciously. There's no point winning an argument if you lose your friend. Listen to this quote from J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. The right to talk intimately to another person about the Lord Jesus Christ has to be earned and you earn it by convincing him that you are his friend and really care about him. And therefore the indiscriminate buttonholing, which means, hey you, come and talk to me. Uh, The intrusive barging in to the privacy of another person's soul the thick-skinned insistence on expounding the things of God to reluctant strangers who are longing to get away, these modes of behaviour in which strong personalities have sometimes indulged in the name of personal evangelism should be written off as a travesty of personal evangelism. Impersonal evangelism would be a better name. It's a very English thing to say, I think, as well. I think uh, English and Aussies, we tend to like to keep to ourselves. I wonder how that fits with other cultures. But anyway, I think I agree with it mostly. We need gentleness and respect as we speak. Just the way Grant Locke would speak when he gets the chance, he speaks naturally about Jesus. Uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan are are pretty hostile to Christianity. Christians have been martyred there. I'd be tempted if I was uh, in in those places to to be very gentle and respectful uh, and a little less always be prepared. (laughs) But locals would ask Grant, we're trying to leave Afghanistan and and you want to stay. Why do you want to stay in Afghanistan? And Grant would reply, well, come and have a cup of tea with me and we'll tell you why. We'll tell you about who it is who has called us here and why we've been here so long and why we're not going anywhere. That's the sort of approach that sees God's purposes worked out. Gentle, respectful behaviour that earns a hearing. It's taken him 20 years of that sort of behaviour, I think, to earn the right to speak. Uh, It's God's will for you as well to respond with godliness to slander and evil. Uh, Do you see it there in verse 17? It's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. That seems like a funny thing to say, but sometimes it's God's will for you to suffer for doing good. How can that be? Well, Peter goes on to prove it with the ultimate example of how God's will happens through suffering. Verse 18, Jesus himself. For Christ died 
for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. What's good about that? Well, to bring you to God. One man died once, completely righteous, and suffered the unjust punishment so that guilty people, you and I, might be declared innocent and brought into God's family. God's will for Jesus meant suffering that brought good. And if he did it for Jesus, he can bring good out of your suffering as well. And Peter continues, verse 18, Not only did Jesus do good, but he also gave the right answer at the right time in the right way. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, can I just say, these are some of the most difficult verses in the Bible (laughs) and hundreds of books, I guess, have been written and everyone's got all sorts of different ideas about what these verses mean. I'm not sure exactly what Peter's thinking. I don't think anybody can say they know exactly what he's thinking, but I think his point is clear. Now, he's probably thinking about a story from an apocryphal book uh, called One Enoch, which is a book that's pretty old, but it's not in the Bible. Uh, It's about the sons of God, or the Nephilim, who we read about in Genesis 6. They were probably, that's another difficult passage, but they were probably rebellious angels who walked the earth around the time of Noah. And one Enoch describes them being shut up in prison for their rebellion until judgment day, at which point their guilty verdict would be proclaimed against them. Now I think what Peter's saying is that it's Jesus who is proclaiming that guilty verdict against uh, the, the, uh, the Nephilim. Now, when? Well, either between his death and resurrection, so after his death and before he was raised, he went to the place of the dead and preached to those spirits. Uh, or else he's actually just proclaiming the news of victory through his resurrection. Uh, it could mean that as well. But either way, he's giving the right answer at the right time. He's proclaiming victory and justice and life to people who are being judged. And because God sent the flood to punish the rebellion of these uh, spirits and because he saved Noah through the flood, Peter goes on to talk about Noah. And he says that Noah and the flood, if you like, it's, it's like an illustration about how we're saved. There are points of similarity between us and Noah. So verse 20, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus. God saved Noah and his family despite the suffering they went through. And he saves people now despite their suffering. And he saves both of them through water. Uh, We're saved in a way uh, as we're baptised or the baptism symbolises our being saved. 
And even when a Christian is baptised, they have the opportunity to give the right answer, to speak. That's probably what the phrase, the pledge of a good conscience towards God means. That pledge is perhaps the the answer to the questions or the the testimony that the Christian would give before they were baptised, answering who their saviour was, answering where their hope was found and how they intended to live. And Peter says those words, the response when someone's baptised, are what saves you, at least from the human side. They show the faith that you have. They give expression to how you respond to God's salvation. But no matter how earnest your words are, there's no power in the words unless it was for the resurrection of Jesus because it's his resurrection that secures your life and your forgiveness. Verse 23 Because of the resurrection, Jesus has gone into heaven, is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. That's a vision that we need to remember. It will help us to answer insults with blessing, with gentleness and respect. That's what will help us keep a clear conscience because we know that Jesus is seated on the throne and will judge everything one day. And all those authorities who are now oppressing Christians will have to submit to him one day. It's that vision of the glorious, exalted Jesus that will keep you recognising how God blesses you now despite your persecution. Because if he exalted Jesus through his suffering, then he will do the same for you. And it's that vision of Jesus that will help you not to fear in this life. It will help you set him apart as Lord because Jesus is number one, the King of Kings. He alone deserves your honour and your fear and your glory. Nobody else. And it's that vision of Jesus that will motivate you to be prepared to give an answer to to whoever asks because that is the hope that you're speaking about, the hope that you have. That vision of the glorious Jesus, that helps people even to face death because they know that they're going to meet that Jesus. And that's better by far, as Paul says in uh, Philippians 3. Let me finish with a story from the Cambodian church in the 1970s. It's estimated that during the rule of Pol Pot, 90% of Cambodian Christians were killed. 90%. The book Killing Fields, Living Fields tells the story of a Christian teacher named Haim who lived in a small village at the edge of a jungle. He and his family were arrested by Pol Pot's soldiers, locked up for the night where they prayed and comforted each other. The next morning they dug their own grave, were granted a moment to prepare. They knelt down, they cried out to God, uh, asking everyone around who was listening to repent and believe the gospel. They were blessing those who cursed them. But then Haim's young son lost his nerve and he ran into the forest. What would Haim do? What was the right answer at the right time? Well, Haim convinced the soldiers not to go after him, but 
He knelt and called out to his son and said, What comparison, my son, stealing a few more days of life in the wilderness, a fugitive, wretched and alone, to joining your family here, momentarily around this grave, but soon around the throne of God, free forever in paradise. That's the right answer at the right time. Within a few minutes, Haim's weeping son walked out of the jungle and rejoined his family by the side of his grave. The whole family was killed and they were buried in the grave they dug themselves and now they're blessed. With Christ, their pain and suffering over. That's the heavenly perspective Peter would have us have. That's not fearing what others fear. That's setting apart Christ as Lord. Christ who was resurrected, who's gone into heaven, is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a vision. Uh, We confess that often our minds, our eyes are full of the temporary unimportant things of this life. Uh, Help us to see the Lord Jesus, uh, to experience him, to know him and walk with him, the Jesus who is seated beside you, reigning with all of the heavenly court, praising and worshipping him. Might that be the vision that we take with us as we go out into the world uh, and live for him. Amen.